Support for this podcast comes from Canva. When you look good, you feel good. But when your presentations look great, it can feel like you're walking on a cloud. You can design stunning work presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. Start with a designer-made template. Use it as a springboard for your design. Add images, graphics, charts, and more from Canva's massive media library. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Episode 85, The Atomic Number of Acetine, Back to the Future was released in 1985. We went back to the future today with this inspiring billionaire space race. I'm having the equivalent of my own space race where I am taking a yellow Corvette and crashing it into a hair plugs clinic. The midlife crisis is on overdrive, bitches. Go, go, go. Welcome to the 85th episode of the Prof G Pod. In today's episode, we speak with Tanya Evans, a professor at Penn State's Dickinson Law School, whose research is focused on law, innovation, academia, and entrepreneurship. We discuss with Tanya the intersection of intellectual property and the crypto space, as well as her take on NFTs as a tool of empowerment. Mm, well then. Okay, what's happening? What's happening? It appears... That same, I, I, fuck that, I gotta go off script here. I have a script that I go off script, but I'm going off, off script. I just watched this morning, uh, Blue Origin, whatever it was called, Shepard, Go Into Space. And I was asked to go on MSNBC and talk about it because I'm kind of a big deal, kind of a big deal, grande deal, grande, dog, dog son un deal grande. Anyways, and I felt like the guy on the shores of Spain saying, it'll never work. You know, I, everyone was like, oh, this is so inspiring and it's a great moment for humanity. No, it wasn't. We achieved much greater things technologically from a courage standpoint, from an imagination standpoint, 50 fucking years ago. Why are we so enthralled with this space race? The only thing I can figure out, the only thing I can figure out is that we have really rich people in the capsule, so we find it fascinating. This is, I think this reflects something very uncomfortable and strange. So first off, uh, Jeff Bezos can spend money how he wants to spend his money. I don't, I'm not one of those people that says, oh, he should spend spending it on world hunger. It's his problem. There will always be societal problems that warrant uh, greater investment, but that should no, in no way inhibit us from exploration and trying to push the boundaries of what we're capable of. I'm, I'm down with that. What I find is just so fucking ridiculous here is this, again, continued idolatry of money and billionaires and people pretending that they're doing something for humanity when all they're doing is running a commercial to try and juice the stock of their space hauling company. Let's talk about space. There's space, there's scientific exploration, which will probably yield huge benefits. Difficult business requires a ton of prospective investment. That's probably the government and medical associations, et cetera, et cetera. There is space exploration. Let's colonize Mars. That's just ridiculously stupid. You want to go be a colonist on Mars? We'll sign up for a one-way trip to a fairly crisp 
horrific death between the the solar storms and the increased gravity. Yeah, good luck with that. Then there is uh, space hauling. That's the good part of the business. There are 3,000 satellites going to 50,000. That is a very good business. Uh, Broadband, communications, there's just a need to take uh, a lot of shit into space, a lot of equipment. And space hauling, rocket launches used to cost about 200 million bucks. Now they're down to 60 million. So the ability to move things into space more economically should be hugely creative. And also there's probably a business there. Now let's talk about the really like head up your ass business and that is space tourism. Okay, let me get this. Virgin Galactic, which didn't get to the Carmen line. And by the way, anyone who saw that video goes, okay, that doesn't look like that much fun. Would I pay 250000 for it? No. So they acknowledge that and they say, we're going to try and get it down to 40000 They want to do up to 400 missions a year, which by the way, would be no small feat for a company that's been around 17 years and hasn't hit any of its milestones. But let's assume they can. The capsule holds four people. That's 1,600 people times 40000 That's $64 million in revenue for a company that even after losing 40% of its value over the last five trading days has a $6.5 billion market cap, so 100 times revenue? I mean, what the fuck are we smoking here? Oh, and by the way, the people who really understand the company maybe sat on its board, maybe got to see management, understand the technology, are super smart, and are the largest shareholders, specifically Chamath and Richard Branson. So Chamath sold his entire stake. He said, okay, I get this company, it's great. I see its prospects, I'm out. All of it. He didn't leave half of it in to get liquidity. He said, no, no, I'm out. That is a negative forward-looking indicator. Richard Branson has sold $850 million of his stock in Virgin Galactic and reinvested it, not to get liquidity for himself, but reinvested in his other businesses. So he's basically decided his other businesses have better prospects than Virgin Galactic. This thing makes no sense. Virgin Galactic is going to be the poster child for SPACs and the space bubble. The worst thing that's going to happen to Virgin Galactic, and the reason why it's going to be sub 10 bucks a share within 12 months, is it's starting to have metrics. Oh, you say you're in the tourism business. Okay, let's look at hospitality. Let's look at airlines, whatever that might be. And all of a sudden, Virgin's made the mistake of saying, okay, we're sort of a tangible thing that has benchmarks. There aren't any airlines. There aren't any cruise companies. There aren't any online travel portals trading at 100 times projected revenues if everything works out. And what do we have today? Who did we used to put into space? Who did we used to put into space? Well, one, we used to fund our nation's space exploration with a progressive tax system. Jeff Bezos, the wealthiest man in the world, has paid approximately a 1% tax rate on his increases in wealth because we have a fucked up tax system that only taxes people when they recognize a capital gain. So you borrow against your capital gain at 0.85% and just keep increasing your debt, but meanwhile, grow your assets tax-free or tax-deferred, sort of the buy, hold, and die strategy, or buy, hold, avoid, and die. Anyways, there's something there. There's probably an acronym in there. And we used to take that tax revenue and fund NASA. And who did NASA send into space? It sent the daughter of a minister who got a PhD in physics from Stanford, uh, Sally Ride, who happened to be the youngest person and the first woman into space. It funded a woman who got a master's in chemical engineering and then went on to get her uh, an MD from Cornell and then took her license to practice medicine and decided to go to Liberia and be in the Peace Corps and then applied to NASA and became an astronaut. I'm, I'm talking about Mia Jameson. This is who we sent into space. Who do we send into space now? 
the wealthiest man in the world and an 18-year-old son of a private equity billionaire out of Norway. Welcome to America. I want to thank uh, every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer because you guys paid for all of this. Okay, what else is happening? A lot of business news. It appears CNN has been listening to the dog. Yes, they have. Yes, they have. The most trusted name in business. The company announced that it's launching its CNN Plus service in 2022. CNN Plus's digital officer, chief digital officer, Andrew Morse, said this development is the network's most important launch since Ted Turner founded the company in 1980. I actually agree with that. This is a big deal. And they, they ladies and gentlemen, are coming to play. This isn't some weird Fox Nation thing or Peacock repurposing SpongeBob and uh, Trevor Noah. They are hiring 450 new people to work on the subscription service. The subscription network will offer 8 to 12 hours of live programming a day and original series. According to Morse, the live programming will be different from what the network currently offers and instead stream more deep dives into various topics. So it'll be sort of a cross between the situation room and kind of live news that's tied to the clock and somewhere in between that and the original scripted Queen's Gambit that takes a year and tens of millions of dollars to produce. It seems to me that they're going to try and, if you will, bourdain the shit out of business with a subscription program. I think this is very exciting. News, politics, and to a certain extent, business news are the last frontier for uh, K- or for over the top. And I think if they come to play, which it sounds like they are, it could win. It could be, I'm, I'm an enormous fan of CNN. I think they have the best talent of any media organization in the world, or at least any uh, television organization. I would argue the New York Times is probably the most outstanding newsroom, so to speak. But anyways, I'm very optimistic. What not to do? Uh, be the peacock. Specifically, can you imagine NBC Universal's peacock can't cut a break? Why? What's their big thing? Their big bet? The Olympics. Who? Who? What? Who are the stars? No one cares. All we hear about in the Olympics is that there's a new infection, or that the Japanese don't want Japanese citizens don't want it. Anyways, unfortunate timing for peacock, but it's sort of when it rains, it pours. According to a report published by Bloomberg reporter Jerry Smith. 14 million people actively use Peacock each month as of late April, but only about 20% were paying for it. So, okay, Netflix, what are they, 200 million people using it? What is what is Peacock right now? It sounds like there's about 3 million people paying for Peacock. Think about th- how much things have changed. Go back 10, 20 years. Must See Thursday, NBC, number one network, Comcast, the player, right? And now 3 million people have signed up. They're at about 1.5% of where Netflix is. That number doesn't sound too great when you compare it with the fact that Disney Plus, Disney Plus, the new kid, the rookie, garnered more than 73 million paid subscribers in its first year. What is going on? You got to go all in. You got to have original content. You have to have a bank. Uh, Netflix, uh, $17 billion content budget, and they sort of had Greenfield. They could lap everybody because no one was paying any attention to them. So let's break down domestic subs across the major players. Netflix is at 66 million. I think they're about 200 million uh, globally. HBO Max, 20 million. Think about it. HBO kind of gave away. HBO was the original gangster here. Hulu, 42 million. Who knew? Hulu. I think it's the name. Showtime at 9 million. Paramount Plus at 10 million. Was that Starship Commander Jean-Luc Picard? By the way, my Halloween outfit every year. Huge crowd pleaser. Huge crowd pleaser. Peacock at 3 million. Discovery Plus at 7 million. Think about that. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with this new multi 
headed monster called Discovery with how they're going to organize all that from a brand standpoint. Anyway, it's not my problem. Disney Plus is now at 38 million people. This is really interesting. We're going to see consolidation here. It's kind of interesting to see who's going to end up with who. You got to imagine somebody's going to buy someone else out of Hulu, whether it's Disney buying Comcast out or Comcast buying Disney out. Showtime can't survive at 9 million. Paramount Plus, I don't think can survive. Be interesting if Peacock, Peacock sits on a quarter of a trillion dollar market cap on Comcast, so they're probably going to be a consolidator versus a consolidatee. But look for them to do something bold because the Roberts family out of Philadelphia, you don't become billionaires in Philadelphia unless you like are willing to make bold moves and throw people into the river, so to speak. Not that I'm accusing them of that. Anyways, my point is these are, I would not want to fuck with the Roberts family, and I would expect them to make a very bold move and come and do some sort of deal with a Roku or buy one of the other players or something. So anyways, let's move on. Earlier this week, Zoom made its largest acquisition yet. The company is acquiring Five9, a cloud contact center software for roughly $15 billion, an all-stock deal. I did not see that coming. Did you? I did not know what Five9 was. I have never heard of Five9. Zoom said this acquisition will help the company enter the $24 billion contact center market. Does contact center mean call center? We recently received an office hours question around what Zoom's next move should be, and I explained how the company essentially has two options. Start acquiring companies and offer a full suite of collaboration tools, or go vertical and offer some sort of other communications device. It's evident they're going with option one, as buying five nine marks the company's fourth acquisition since the start of the pandemic, according to Bloomberg. The other acquisitions include Keybase, an encryption startup, and a German translation software maker. Oh, that sounds like a... <laughs> that sounds like a laugh a minute. Anyways, anyways, so let's think about this. Does this acquisition give Zoom a competitive advantage over Microsoft and Teams? I don't know. I think that Zoom has such incredible custody of the consumer, but they're kind of running up against Microsoft. And I wonder what's going to happen here. And they're sort of in a weird position. They have no choice but to make acquisitions because they are now so expensive. They're not really an acquisition candidate. Uh, but at the same time, they're bumping up against some formidable players Microsoft has a relationship with an enterprise buyer in 98% of the corporate world that does over 10 or $50 million in revenue. So that is a pretty formidable uh, incumbent. Uh, but Zoom is doing the right thing. I would have every investment banker working for me if I was working at Zoom or running Zoom, which could happen. The Zoom dog. So let's summarize all this. We have the mother of all midlife crises playing out in front of our eyes where we're supposed to be inspired, and it's an opportunity for broadcast media to pretend there's something interesting going on here. I just don't get it. I think it is ridiculous. This isn't the space race. It's the lame race. We have Zoom sharpening their pencils and making a ton of acquisitions. It's a great time to be a small collaboration company with decent momentum. You're about to be taken out or get a ton of offers. It'll be interesting to see if, in fact, they can hold their own or if their market capitalization gets cut in half when we return or some of us return to work and they're no longer able to sustain the kind of growth where their stock is really priced in that kind of amazing, amazing growth. And and finally, the OTT landscape, the streaming landscape, is about to get more interesting as the final frontier of news and politics is now about to be uh, have flags planted all over it that say CNN as they take their army of world-class journalists and a substantial amount of capital, and quite frankly, a new company that needs to show real momentum in streaming. I think they're launching sometime in 2022. That is going to be super interesting. It'll be interesting to see if the other guys 
uh, uh, come up with their own news offerings. And what happens? There's going to be tremendous consolidation in the space. And oh my gosh, watch out for what Comcast does because they are a big player that is not doing well. And uh, that probably doesn't wash with them. And they are not afraid to make bold moves. And they have absolutely the bandwidth and the capital to go make a bold move. Look for a bold move from, from the peacock. And then look for the little cocks to continue to go into space. Stay with us. We'll be right back for our conversation on decentralized finance, crypto, and IP with Professor Tanya Evans. Or those of us in the know call it DeFi. I feel younger already. When your work presentations and docs look good, you look good. You can design stunning work presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. You can start with a designer-made template, then use that as a springboard for your design. Add images, graphics, charts, and more from Canva's massive media library. Or get a huge head start with AI-powered Canva presentations and docs. Just describe what you want with a few words, and Canva will generate amazing slides and text in seconds. It's AI that anybody can use, no matter what department you work in or whatever work task you need to get done. Look, we all need to visually communicate at work. Canva makes it easy to get your point across while looking professional. And at the end of it all, that stunning Canva presentation is going to make you look good. Wow any audience and finish your work faster. Start designing today at canva.com. Design for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Professor Evans, where does this podcast find you? I'm in the great state of Pennsylvania. Where? We're in Pennsylvania. <laughs> I'm in the crypto space, so I don't actually, I might not even be in the United States. You don't know that. But uh, wow. um, I grew up in Philadelphia, if that's helpful. Nice. Uh, and obviously a Penn State. So yes. let's let's talk a little bit about this. So can you walk us through the intersection of intellectual property and the crypto space? So I guess to take a step back to even just say what intellectual property is, all mm-hmm. intellectual property is property, but not all property is is IP. And, and IP really focuses on three main areas. Uh, there are a few others, but the big three that most people hear about, copyright, trademark, patent, each is focused on protecting a different aspect of property that is created with the mind is a very loose way. Uh, it's intangible personal property. And and most often copyright comes into play when you're talking about uh, creativity or collectibles. And I know we're going to get into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but copyright in particular focuses on protecting an author. And we use that in a more general sense, uh, a creator's uh, work when it is independently created, meaning they didn't copy anybody else's work. And it is what we call fixed in a tangible medium, which is gobbledygook that basically focuses on something that is sufficiently permanent, either in writing or recording, somewhere where it's sufficiently permanent that it's even capable of being copied. 
And then uh, copyright is actually a bundle of rights. It's the right to reproduce or the right to copy, obviously. Um, also the right to distribute those copies, the right to prepare derivative works from that copy or to adapt it into something new. So if somebody writes a book um, and then they sell the film rights, for example, those film rights mm -hmm. derived from or were adapted from the book. And then finally, the right to perform a creative work uh, publicly if it's capable of being performed or the right to publicly display if the work is capable of being displayed. So that actually makes up the bundle of rights. And therefore, it's really, really important that artists who are transitioning into the non-fungible token or the NFT space mm -hmm. really fully appreciate the nature of those rights, not only to protect their own work, but also not to unknowingly, because there's a lot of theft out there, hope we talk about that too, um, but to not uh, unknowingly or unwittingly fall uh, fall into um, copying someone else's work uh, that could be considered copyright infringement if it's not uh, a fair use. So there's a lot that artists really do have to think about above and beyond just the pure uh, process of creation as they're moving into the digital space. So NFT, and I'm um, amongst this cohort, I think NFT is a term that we all pretend to understand better than than we do. Can you give me your kind of cocktail party explanation of NFT and what do you think the dynamics are at play here, why they've become, you know, a big thing and what you think the future or the prospects are of the NFT market? So, so the acronym NFT stands for non-fungible token. Mm -hmm. And so uh, to get at the, the, the power and the potential of NFTs in, in the crypto asset space, you kind of take a step back to just figure out what this word fungible means. And fungibility is, is a, a, a technical term that comes out of the account on the economy side of things that focuses on the interchangeability of an asset or a commodity. Uh, for example, one dollar is the same as any other dollar in terms of its value. Technically speaking, every dollar has its own serial number, but it doesn't impact the um, the value of $1 for $1, apple to an apple, things that are interchangeable. The, the, the power and, and the real intrigue around non-fungible tokens is that each token represents a unique asset that is also, it is, it in and of itself is unique and it's verifiably unique because of the technology that powers non-fungible tokens, uh, crypto assets more broadly, and, and ultimately blockchain. Blockchains are basically the records of transactions and balances that uh, if I sent you an NFT, I would have one, I send it to you, whatever it happens to represent. And we'll talk about that in a moment in terms of the creative space, but the token itself represents value. And it also allows the presumptive owner of that token to exercise ownership and control over that token that represents some type of value. In the creative space, those tokens are connected to an underlying work that gets to your original question about intellectual property implications in the space. Um, that, that token is representing ownership. Think of it more commonly as the way you might use a deed to represent ownership in a home. Each home on a parcel of land is actually mm -hmm. unique, even if you live in a cookie cutter environment and every McMansion mm -hmm. looks the same, but that unique parcel of land is represented by a specific deed. Uh, the token in, you know, rough analogy uh, is the same way one might exercise ownership and control 
over the underlying asset. Um, in our case for NFTs, in most cases, it's some type of digital creativity. It could also be um, physical work, and, uh, but, but in most cases, it's talking about uh, some type of underlying digital creativity. So tell me where I got this wrong. I think of NFTs as another layer of scarcity that's man-made that basically or artificial or a construct we've invented that you had you had artisans creating one-off paintings and they said well there's an opportunity here there's more than one person that wants to own this painting so we'll create a lithograph or whatever it is a a steel plate Mm -hmm. mimicry of the piece of art we'll stamp out just 200 we'll sign one of 200 two of 200 and we create a new layer that people can enjoy, but it still has scarcity attached to it, mm-hmm. which creates more economic value in the ecosystem. Isn't this just another layer of scarcity where we said we're going to create a limited number, one for a new medium, such that there can be additional uh, an, a, additional economic value? Where do I have this wrong? I actually think that you are, are pretty spot on. And in the same way, you can have one of, uh, with a slight uh, distinction and an advantage. So it's not mm-hmm. an incorrect statement, but I think that mm-hmm. the technology takes it a step further. I think about, I'll take a slight in run around this. In, in the late 90s, when you think about the Napsters and Groxters of the world, uh, mm-hmm. you have the advent uh, in the late 90s of peer-to-peer technology, which is one of the three main technologies used in distributed ledger technology or blockchain technology of the internet. You have peer-to-peer technology and encryption with digital signature. Uh, Peer-to-peer technology was a major problem from um, a creativity point of view, the entertainment industry. We thought it was going to fall down and become a shell of its former self. Some might argue that that actually did happen, but I think they're still making a couple of bucks. But the, the issue was that one person could sit in, in their home and make a perfect digital copy of an MP3 file, send it to a thousand of their not so closest friends and still not exhaust that copy that they had. Right. So uh, that was of great concern in the creative space. And certainly that's always going to be a concern when you're talking about digital money now, you know, focus more specifically on cryptocurrencies and the ability to make sure that if I have one Bitcoin and then send it to you, I no longer have it. It avoids mm-hmm. the idea of fraud uh, or failure of, of a secure system. That same idea can be applied in the art space, certainly to create a one of one creative uh, token or the one of 10 or the one of 200. I've seen that in in the digital space as well. But to be able to verify the authenticity of that without relying on a human Mm -hmm. or an entity where, um, you know, I think of of the the art world as being very um, opaque. And Mm -hmm. I think about the asymmetry of information that pervades the, the financial world that certainly exists, maybe even more so, in the art world. And so it's the ability of creating those secondary layer markets, which are really, really critical for the success of an artist. And in most cases in the physical world, artists aren't participating in that, but they can participate in a very meaningful and real way in the NFT space by coding through smart contracts or or, um, self-executing code, the ability to direct payments, not only on that first sale, but in downstream revenue opportunities, which is really important for artists. And so you you mentioned the word utility. If if I own a Grayson Perry piece of art, there's utility 
around the fact that the scarcity offers me and that scarcity has some credibility. You buy it through a quote unquote legitimate broker. Mm -hmm. You do believe that it's only one of 200 and they broke the mold. So I get signaling value. I get to say, hey, I own a Grayson Perry. Um, it's a store of value, which has utility. Ideally, art, I think art has outperformed almost every asset class. Right. And it also has some consumption value. And that is I can hang it on my wall and I can enjoy it. It strikes me that NFTs are, um, one, they use technology to create that scarcity credibility, which is utility. They can be stores of value. Mm -hmm. um, is there, but I don't see any consumption. Like if, if I download something off Spotify that has certain IP, someone gets paid, that's fine. I enjoy the music, I enjoy the art. Isn't the utility here gonna be more about speculation than any sort of consumption? Isn't that what's different than NFTs, say, versus um, artwork? Well, it depends on the reason that a buyer is participating in the market. Yep. I, you, I think you're gonna have, I know, not think that, uh, to your point, we just have way more speculation in some sense, because we're just in the gold rush of of crypto more broadly. Uh, but mm -hmm. I absolutely know that there are people who are speculating, and I would call them investors, right? Mm -hmm. And they're just going to spend money buying Bitcoin, ETH, and any altcoin, inclu including NFTs, and they're just going to see what shakes out, right? But then you have those who uh, do appreciate the subjective value of art for art's sake, mm -hmm. or collectives that are individuals and collectives focused on supporting the creative ecosystem for the purpose of the expression of the art form and what art brings. So, so you have all sorts of people who are able actually to participate. I spend a lot of time focused on the empowerment of artists more broadly and then sp mm -hmm. specific communities in particular. But actually, as we're talking through this, I think this is empowering collectors who, uh, particularly digital natives, who for the first time may have some additional subjective appreciation of the value of art, separate in part hmm. from the, the economic value. And you said that you think that NFTs are particularly empowering for black and brown creators and women. Why is that? When I think about the disintermediation of the financial world and the tech hmm. world, that has real power in this other microcosm that has captured, unfortunately, some of the systemic issues and concerns of, of what we've talked earlier about the lack of transparency, uh, certainly accessibility to the auction houses of the world and the mm. galleries, uh, the uh, the value that is placed on uh, certain art forms and not uh, art forms maybe from black and brown communities, from women, uh, from the queer community and the like. And mm -hmm. the ability to leverage that peer-to-peer -peer technology that first, you know, came in vogue with, with uh, on the crypto side and to see that happen in the NFT space as well, removing barriers to entry, removing the expensive, quote unquote, friction um, mm -hmm. in the exploitation of creativity. And when I say exploitation, I mean uh, the leveraging of it, not in a mm -hmm. pejorative sense, um, access to global markets. So in the same way that um, is really, really powerful in the cryptocurrency realm, it's absolutely powerful in the creative and collectible space. And just like uh, the the liquidity that is injected into art, which mm -hmm. can be somewhat illiquid because of the subjective value we talked about, and certainly in the collectibles market, um, and the interaction perhaps of other 
Web3 technologies that are just opening up and expanding the options and opportunities for creators is really, really important across the board, but even more important for those communities that are historically disenfranchised um, and, and maybe overlooked. Um, so occasionally I like to pause a podcast when I think there's something that's worth pausing on that I think is real insight. And what you said there I thought was really powerful. As I think about it, if you think about banking, right, the branches, history of redlining, and a lot of right. people of color just aren't comfortable and don't trust the traditional supply chain around traditional suppliers and finance. And one of the wonderful things about crypto is that 47% of the owners of crypto are people of color not by dollar volume, right. but by you know, the numbers of people. And this is dispersing the, the creative content, just the same way that TikTok says, we don't care, we're not gonna judge the pedigree or the certification of the creator, we're just gonna look at the quality of the content. And if the end right. consumer likes it, our algorithm, which is you know not biased, not benign, but not malicious, is just gonna distribute content based on the value of that, that this might represent the same sort of um, opportunity. I think that I think that's um, super interesting. I, wa I want to pivot to uh, decentralized finance or DeFi as a way for people to build generational wealth, specifically Black entrepreneurs. Give us your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so much. Of, I'm feeling like we are establishing some common themes for this episode because mm -hmm. decentralized finance or DeFi also amplifies opportunity um, through access to opaque markets, transparency. So when you think of public permissionless blockchains and uh, when you think of decentralized autonomous organizations and all of that public facing information that's pseudonymous, it's not anonymous, except in, in the case of some privacy coins, story for another day, but you can see the public record of the uh, the transactions and the balances in a way that is 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 obscured in centralized or traditional finance. That brings opportunity. Uh, also, self-sovereignty over one's own value. DeFi creates this opportunity for people to engage in, um, in the action or the activity that banks usually do, this direct resource transfer from the saver to the spender. When you're connecting savers and spenders, traditionally that relationship and those transactions are facilitated by banks. And it, you know, the banking system is highly regulated in some sense, but you've already identified the redlining and uh, the, you know, the cost of taking out a loan at higher interest rates, even with all things being equal. It makes me think of the wealth gap that uh, persists and, and how one begins to, to eke away at that when there's mm -hmm. not equal participation in, in financial markets. So, when I think of decentralized finance or DeFi, I really focus on the opportunity, I guess, to um, democratize finance and mm -hmm. thereby decreasing the wealth inequality that that persists um, in a pernicious way from generation to generation. And a final point, when I think of uh, the Black community in particular and, and how I was raised and in talking to some of my friends and relatives, the focus has always been on education. And, mm -hmm. and understandably so. And my education has been invaluable to me. We focus on the things that people can't take away because one day you can have something and the next day your entire town can be burned down. But as mm -hmm. long as you're living, no one can take away your education. So that was, hmm. you know, a persistent theme. But uh, the others are 
get good insurance, um, maybe a burial plot and a good government job and you'll be mm -hmm. great. The problem with that is um, our white counterparts, uh, to the extent that they have access to it as well, um, may be more inclined to have things passed down, may have mm -hmm. more access to appreciating assets and capital mm -hmm. assets, stocks, equities, and things of that uh, that nature. And if you're not investing in that way, which is another uh, thing that's really exciting in the crypto space, for those who are actually receiving payment for their art or um, in the decentralized uh, finance ecosystem, you're dealing with capital assets. Taxes is a uh -huh. capital asset. They're going up, they're going down. That's very different than receiving government-issued currency, also known as fiat. If you have a dollar, by the time you put it in your wallet, and I'm sure it's not, the value is not the same. Uh, and that is a game changer for generational wealth creation as well. Coming up after the break. It's a complete mind shift to, to really embrace what it means to be self-sovereign to control your own money. Stay with us. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. If you own a business, money is often at the top of your mind. How to save it, how to spend it, how much you need, how much you don't need. But simple math will tell you that the less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have to keep the money you've earned. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a leading cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash prof. netsuite.com slash prof. netsuite.com slash prof. I would just love to get your kind of off-the-cuff thoughts uh, on some First off, let me just straight up. Are you a crypto bull or bear? Do you look at these, do you look at this market and think this is undervalued, overvalued? Bitcoin and Ethereum will do well, but the rest go to zero. What's your general viewpoint on this as a market? My personal sentiments are I'm um, bullish on crypto generally, in particular. Um, and I know the Bitcoin maxis are going to be mad. I love Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the OG. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin is scarce. Mm -hmm. 21 million. I get all of that. I believe that the conversation and the the narrative can be a both and, not an either or. I am mm -hmm. the chair of the Maker Foundation, part of the Maker DAO community. I believe <laughs> very much in the Ethereum virtual machine and smart contracts and the things that you can run on top that it's really transforming finance. Um, then I think of the other 10,000 plus <laughs> tokens and coins out there and things that we don't even know yet, right? I, I'm sure people were really excited about electronic mail, also known as email, as being the first mm -hmm. use case for the internet. And now look what we're doing with this technology, doing things that, that no one could have imagined. And so I am bullish on the idea of having alternatives to government-issued currency. I, I definitely see private 
coins from private entities. We know that there are big entities working on that, but there are always going to be alternatives. We'll see what sifts through, what makes it through. Um, and, and I caution people to just make sure that they are you know, D-Y-O-R, doing your own research to Mm -hmm. compare, contrast, and distinguish how various coins, uh, native coins or tokens built on top of other platforms, how they... how they, how they were created, their intended function. Um, and, and it's really important not to aggregate all into one basket because they all just function uh, so differently. What about the storage or the custodianship of these assets? Do you believe in, in a disclosure? I'm an investor in a company called Ledger that makes the Nano X, uh, which is sort of the premier um, mm-hmm. crypto wallet. Do you think a company like Coinbase eventually has its own wallet and takes that market away or that more and more people are going to take, are going to say, I I need something that can't be hacked and move to more decentralized uh, cold storage? What's your thought on how we store this? Oh, it's such a good question. There are a lot of shaky hands and necessarily so because it's not Mm -hmm. like just losing your wallet and being very sad about that, but maybe there's only a hundred dollars, not 1 million, right? Yeah, your life Um, savings, yeah. And as an aside, but related point, it's a complete mind shift to to really embrace what it means to be self-sovereign, to Mm -hmm. control your own money, to not rely on intermediaries that can serve a function, Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I say that, you know, both. Or that have FDIC or. insurance, right? Right, right. Even though that runs out at a certain point, too. Yep. Right? We'll, yep. we'll give you some, but uh, over right. that, you're, you're on your own, kid. So what does that mean? What does that feel like? The, uh, the anxiety that that produces leads me to believe that there will be a whole core contingent of folks who believe in cold storage. And there is a great reason for people, even if they're not going to have a lot on a ledger, for example, that they would have some some exercise that's like full autonomy and control. But obviously, we are going to see custodied solutions and the the you know the the multi layered issue from a regulatory perspective means what what is the regulation around that going to look like? I think there are, are a lot of companies chomping at the bit to get into custodied solutions, and and they are. Uh, some of the the biggest financial players in the world are after balking or saying this is a passing fad, fad or putting fear, uncertainty, and doubt or FUD into the headlines every day. Now it's kind of a, if you can't beat them, join them, and they want to provide access to their high net worth clients, right? Mm-hmm. Giving some exposure without you know and mitigating the risk, and that is what intermediaries certainly do. I think we're going to see even, you know, the improvement in the self-custody wallet scenario. I think we're going to see some regulation about around those wallets as well mm-hmm. uh, from a, a know your customer anti-money laundering uh, point of view. And then you're going to see some robust custody solutions. My my final point and my, my hope is that there will be so much competition that it forces these entities to not replicate the ills of the current system. Otherwise, we just end up where we are in Web 2.0 world. You know, Web 2.0 was supposed to be this decentralized panacea. And and uh, we see that it has coalesced around five, six companies. Why do you think crypto is so male dominated? It feels so Dungeons and Dragons meets ESPN meets Fast and Furious. It just feels so, you'd think this new medium in many ways, it feels more progressive. 
it, it, there's definitely an association with people of color. Mm-hmm. Why is it so male dominated? I think it was born out of the tech field and the financial world coming together right. and having a baby. And male so, and male, yeah, male and male, male, male equals male. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so those early OGs in the space mm-hmm. were working on that. This is one of those quadrants in life where many people didn't know that they didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time it really started, the crypto, the, the the idea of Bitcoin in particular, started coming into the public ethos a bit was probably around 2015 when Ethereum first came on the scene. And it was, it Bitcoin in particular was immediately associated with nefarious activity and, and the DAO mm-hmm. hack and all these other things. So most people, to the extent they even had heard about it, definitely wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, I mm-hmm. came on the scene in 2017. I know people can't tell, but I'm highly risk adverse. So I'm mm-hmm. shocking myself every day by the work I'm doing. But it takes a long time from that mindset shift to to even really appreciate the technology. Uh, I think that this area is improving and improving rapidly. I was doing some research for an article I'm writing and focused on some statistics uh, statistics about uh, use in Nigeria in particular. About mm-hmm. One third of um, citizens in, in Nigeria are actively using crypto, probably Bitcoin one third. in particular. One third. Third. And when you say actively, you mean using it as a form of payment? They're converting the local currency to crypto? What do you mean by that? That's act? correct. Uh, all mm-hmm. of the above. So from the perspective of store of value to hedge against that, but also in regular transactions in ways, quite frankly, we're not doing in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, I, I feel like adoption from a day-to-day payments perspective, and mm-hmm. I don't know a lot of people who are investors or speculators in the United States who have any desire to spend Bitcoin for example, but maybe mm-hmm. other, other types of, of crypto that they would use to exchange. And we see ETH is obviously a major player in the NFT space. So at a bare mm-hmm. minimum, even if people don't want to hold um, crypto long term, they have to get ETH if they want to buy NFTs or if they're receiving payments in ETH, they're going to have to offboard. So we see that kind of activity. But in other nations where it really, really matters, where the access uh, or where the instability in markets means that you have to have an alternative to to fiat, it's really taking off um, in, in incredible ways. So I, I say all that to say black and brown communities throughout the diaspora, not just in mm-hmm. the United States, are taking notice. Um, I think this is very empowering for women. If you think of some religious uh, approaches that would prevent women from earning money or holding their own sure. value. This is a way that this has uh, changed. I don't have the statistics in front of me, but certain uh, countries in Africa in particular and communities, there's been this uh, really great story around empowering women who are working um, as farmers and actually uh, somewhere along the supply chain and actually being paid with their wallets and and, and having some agency sovereignty and control there. So it's not a matter of if, uh, but when. And every time there's some type of pump in price or dramatic drop in price, it just brings more people uh, to, it brings crypto to the attention of more people. And that includes all people, um, not just the male-centered narrative around uh, uh, Bitcoin and crypto more broadly. Tanya Evans is a professor at Penn State's Dickinson Law School, where she continues to expand her work in blockchain and cryptocurrency, data, technology, entertainment law, and social justice. 
Professor Evans also owns the Advantage Evans Academy and hosts the Tech Intersect podcast, a weekly podcast that highlights new and notable experts at the intersection of law, business, and technology. She joins us from Pennsylvania. Professor Evans, thank you so much. I really love this conversation. One of my takeaways here is that you've kind of opened my eyes to some of the more positives around cryptocurrency. I think you're a fantastic um, evangelist for the space. Well done. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. I hope it's the first, but not the last. Yeah, 100%. Take care. Algebra of happiness. I think America is infected with a virus where we have conflated liberty with selfishness. I don't think we fully recognize and appreciate the sacrifices that others have made such that we could sit around and decide that we're not going to wear a mask or that we don't want to take a vaccine. We want to see what the long-term effects are. We're just lazy about it. And we are now sitting here with vaccinations or with, excuse me, with infections up 78% week on week. And we have decided that this is about to go away. We have decided that it is time for us to get back to our lives. Well, here's the thing, folks. COVID-19 didn't get the memo on what we expect and are planning for it. And we need to recognize this could get worse. This could get worse. Viruses are incredible organisms. And this thing is bumping around learning from every person that doesn't infect or every person that does infect, every person that gets sick. And these new variants are evolving. I mean, this shit, this thing is smart. The longer we let this thing bump around without putting a stake through its fucking heart, the stronger it gets, the more evasive it gets, the more shrewd it gets. And these little pockets of non-vaccination in the U.S. are an incredible threat to our entire country, much less our entire economy. So what am I suggesting? I'm suggesting that our government needs to show more leadership. Specifically, specifically, I don't think you can require someone to put a foreign substance into their body that they don't want. Granted, you can be strapped to a gurney and have bodily fluid taken against your will if you're suspected of a DUI. Granted, we can ask you to get a vaccine if you want to take your kids to public school, and that's what I'm suggesting here. And that is, if you're the recipient of government payments, and I think a lot of these non-vaccinated hot zones The transfer payments are enormous, whether it's Medicare, Social Security, unemployment. If you're going to cash a check from the government, then you have to show that you are a participant, that you are a citizen. You are not going to infect others. You're not going to be a strain on the healthcare system, much less a strain on the economy. And you need to get a goddamn vaccine. And I think it's time for our government to show some of the same backbone and leadership it's shown in the past. In 1941, we issued draft notices. And a lot of young men justifiably said the following. My dad went over there, there being Europe, 23 years ago, 25 years ago, and didn't come back. And my mom is a widow and we were impoverished. And now just a couple decades later, you want me to go back for the same stupid reasons? No, I'm not going. You can understand that argument. You can understand it. And you know what we did? We put 5,000 men in prison. Because we had decided our leaders who were elected democratically, just as our leaders have been democratically elected now, that the Commonwealth was more important and that it required a certain level of sacrifice. And what we have now are vaccines where we've administered over 300 million doses and we have trouble finding any, any negative outcomes, any. And so the notion that people are going to wait or 
give in to this bullshit conspiracy theory, mostly from Facebook and Fox News, who, by the way, do you realize Rupert Murdoch was vaccinated in December? I mean, literally got it before people, emergency room doctors. Oh, oh, but there's profit. We can make money off of spreading this conspiracy theory bullshit. And then the algorithms on Facebook, by the way, you can bet every single executive there has been vaccinated, said, wait, our algorithms have found a way to make money by promoting this very controversial anti-vax misinformation. The government needs to step in here and show some backbone and say, fine, you want to cash a government check. You want to go to a government school, a public school. You want to get on a government-sanctioned FAA flight, fine, fine. Like certain countries, like certain schools, like we have done repeatedly, repeatedly, then boss, you have to show some citizenship and you have to get vaccinated. We need vaccination passports. We need to put a stake through the fucking heart of this thing. It's time for us to act like citizens. It is time for the government to show some backbone. Mandatory vaccinations for people taking government transfer payments. It sounds so indignant. Anyways, I'll rub happiness. That wasn't that happy. That wasn't that happy. Our producers are Caroline Chagrin and Drew Burrows. Claire Miller is our assistant producer. Hello, Claire. Hello, Claire. Assistant producer, AP. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Prop G Pod from the Fox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you next week on Monday and Thursday. Two thousand customers, including Under Armour, Lululemon, RIT. What the fuck is RIT? Where's my producer? RIT. They own. They have RIT. What is RIT? <laughs> Rochester Institute of Technology. Oh, okay. The Rochester. Thank you. Thank you for that, Caroline. The RIT or the Rochester Institute of Technology. I don't know if I should know that. Thanks to Canva for their support. You're busy, there's no denying that, and we all wish for just a little more time in the day. So why not let Canva help you get your work done faster and more efficiently? You can get started with their AI-powered presentations. Just describe what you want with a few words, and Canva will generate amazing slides in seconds. It's AI that anybody can use, no matter what department you work in or whatever task you need to get done. Finish your deck faster. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work.